The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to Psalm 115. Not a super familiar psalm to some, but one that speaks to me, uh, challenges me in my worship, challenges me in my perspective, and in whom is my trust. As I was reflecting upon this psalm, I was thinking about how a, a portrait bears the likeness of the person being painted and emphasizes certain characteristics. And even in a portrait, there's an interpretation going on of the unique qualities of the individual. Now, no sane person mistakes the portrait for the actual person, and the glory goes to the painter, not to the painting itself. Well, in a similar manner, humans are made in the image of God. We are not God, but we do bear his likeness, and we are called heavenward to manifest the glory of God emphasizing that it's his glory, not ours. The fundamental problem we have in a fallen state is a worship problem. We have a worship disorder. We are corrupted by sin. We have disordered desires, and we are self-focused. And the psalm helps to put things aright and points to the one coming, that Christ is the one who would come to deliver us from our bondage to idolatry, to restore us into the free-worshipping creatures God made us to be. I invite you to follow with me as I read Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
The heavens are the Lord's heavens. But the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this bold psalm that boldly indicts idolatry, that boldly declares that to you alone belongs all glory. I pray that you would help us as we study this psalm to renounce the things of this world that compete for your glory. And may we grow as a worshiping people who are growing more and more into your likeness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Any keen observer of children will notice that children love to imitate. Young children pretend to be policemen and firemen, ballerinas and mommies and various types of people that they may one day become. Children may also imitate dogs, lions, and horses, animals that are beneath their nature. They also will pretend to be superheroes, beings that are beyond their imagination, things they can only dream of. Imitation is part of life. We do it constantly to, to gain skills, the student training to become a surgeon, the musician becoming a concertmaster violinist. The best actors will get into character becoming like the person they hope to present before the audience. The actor does not become that person, historical or fictional in nature, but will appear in their likeness to the pleasure of the watching audience. Psalm 115 acknowledges our tendency to imitate. Here in the psalm, we have a warning to those who would make and those who would worship idols, lest they become like them. But the converse is also true, implied in this psalm, and evident throughout the scriptures, that those who worship God become like him. We become more and more like the object of our desire and our affections. People give glory to things. People glorify works of arts, musicians, athletes, great heroes. But ultimately, glory belongs to the one who made us, who redeemed us for himself. This psalm teaches us to give glory to God not to ourselves, not to idols, but to him who is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. We know in the Reformed camp that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But the chief end of sin is to glorify ourselves you remember how the, the evil one tempted our first parents to seize the knowledge of God on their own terms, to, to learn the knowledge of good and evil, to become godlike, to become gods themselves. And yet, Scripture teaches that man is finite. We are now mortal as a result of the fall, and we will one day be immortal by the very power of God. 
God granted dignity to human nature, implanting us and impressing upon us his very image, which is now distorted by sin, self-deification, and vainglory. Lamech boasted to his wives that he killed a young man. The men of Babel built a great tower to the heavens in order to make a great name for themselves. Rehoboam boasted that he was greater than his father Solomon and lost most of his kingdom. King Nebuchadnezzar boasted in his great wealth and power and was reduced to a brute beast. We live in a post-Christian age filled with much glorying in self. But man cannot bear the weight of self-glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. It means heavy. It is weighty. It is something that only God is able to bear. Only God can measure up to the expectations of glory. The false religions of the world teach that man is weak but not fallen. But by faith or repentance or works or prayers, somehow he may attain to and merit glory. The secular humanists who reject traditional religion, glory in the mastery of science and man's accomplishments in medicine, improving the quality of life, increasing the length of life expectancy. Even Christians can be guilty of self-glory, boasting in our ministry, consumed with our own sacrifices and gifts rather than reveling and enjoying the very mercy of God and giving glory to him alone for our salvation. Moses warned the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 8, 17, lest Israel think that by my power and might I have gained my great wealth. Ingratitude is one sign of self-glory. Lack of perspective is another sign False humility is yet another. Moses goes on to warn in Deuteronomy 9.4, lest Israel think that because of our righteousness, the Lord has brought us into the land. We are foolish when we credit our own wits and our own work to our great wealth, our own goodness, somehow meriting God's blessing. Such attitudes are vain glory is God's steadfast love and his faithfulness that are the source of all of our blessings physically, spiritually, temporally, and eternally. To God alone be the glory. One of our modern features that I believe makes us especially prone to vain glory is the internet. We can now access nearly infinite amounts of information. We have great ease in commerce and purchasing power. We can pollute ourselves with untold amounts of smut. And people boast in their virtual identity that they establish through social media. I learned from our own Walt Mueller at his recent banquet for Center of Parent and Youth Understanding that our teens now oftentimes have a a public 
Instagram account and a private Instagram account, a private one that they keep just with their closest friends on this social media uh, image-based platform. And our teams today face much pressure. But this pressure to present themselves, to massage their public persona, their image, almost like a public relations organization within a large corporation. Our teens want image, but they, they feel the weight and the pressure to maintain it, and many of them are seeking relief. They cannot bear the weight of vain glory. I urge all of us to be careful online, lest we be tempted to think that we can access information on anything or indulge in deep fantasies, consequence-free, lest we be trapped into seeking the praise or the pity of others through social media. All of these are worthless attempts at self-glory that ultimately rob us of the joy and the privilege of giving glory to the one who died, who rose again, and who lives up to the fame and the glory due his matchless name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we must give glory to God and not to idols. The context here in verse 2 is unknown to us, other than the fact that Israel was suffering the taunting of the nations, who asks, where is their God? Where is your God? When disaster strikes, when you suffer hardship of many kinds, Pharaoh responded to Moses' request to let the people go with his own question. Who is the Lord? Who is this God of a slave people who would take my laborers away from their work. I'm God, was essentially Pharaoh's response. And so the showdown began. And Pharaoh would soon learn who the Lord is, as all of his idols, all of his false gods, were being attacked and pummeled by the ten plagues. And the land of Egypt was laid waste, brought to their knees even to the decimation of Pharaoh's own army. The concern for the nations is a common theme in Scripture. Moses pleaded with God not to destroy Israel after the golden calf incident at Sinai because God's reputation would be tainted among the nations. The vision of Scripture is that all the nations would come and worship the Lord. And so this question, where is their God, implies that in the minds of many in that day, that the God of Israel had passed into legend. That's similar to our own day, when many secularists insist that the biblical God is no longer relevant, is no longer tenable to hold to biblical truth and revelation in this great modern scientific age. But we can learn well from our forefathers. In verse 3, they answer this taunt, this question, by reminding the heathen that God 
is in heaven. And he does what he pleases. God is not summoned by magicians. He does not live in temples made by human hands. He is not fed by the food of his servants. He is not carried about by priests and their followers. And our God does not change his standards to conform to the spirit of the age, to the values that we believe are acceptable. The true God does not need our counsel. Isaiah chapter 40, Ephesians 1, and other places make it very clear that God operates on his own counsel according to his own will. He does not need our advice on how to run the world. So in contrast to worshiping the great God, here is a rebuke in verses 4 through 8, a rebuke to idol makers and to idol worshipers. Like Toto pulling back the curtain on the great and powerful Wizard of Oz, Psalm 115 exposes the folly and the impotence of idols. Idols and graven images can be beautifully crafted by very skilled artisans in gold and silver, other metals or wood. When I was in Taipei, I visited the National Palace Museum and saw all the wonders of China, all the Buddhas and all the other images, beautiful, beautiful images and idols that are powerless, powerless to save. The psalm says they have mouths, but do not speak. I used to wonder why, why would anyone believe that a stone, metal, or wood image could be a god? And then in studying the matter, I learned that it was a very common and ancient custom for, for the priest to have a ritual, to have a, a consecration ceremony where they would, they would dedicate the graven image. They would consecrate it so that the spirit would enter into the image and animate it. In fact, there was a very common cleansing rite of the mouth. Had to cleanse the mouth of the idol so that the God would speak through it. And this understanding gives us context for what happens in Isaiah 6, where God commissions Isaiah, commanding the seraph to bring a burning hot coal to cleanse the mouth and the lips of Isaiah, that he would be a conduit, a mouth of the Lord Almighty. See, we are his images. We speak his word. There is nothing we can make to speak for God. We speak for him as he speaks to us and through us by the word of God. The taunting continues in verse 5. Against such idols that have eyes but cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear the prayers of their worshipers. They have noses, but cannot smell the sweet scents of incense and perfumes. They have hands, but can feel not. They have feet, but have nowhere to go. The gods of the earth must be carried, but our God carries us. You remember how Elijah the prophet challenged the prophets of Baal to a duel? The God who answers by fire, he is God. 
And so the prophets of Baal, they, they chanted and they danced and they cut themselves and worked themselves up into a frenzy. All the while, Elijah taunted them, suggesting that perhaps Baal was traveling. Perhaps he was relieving himself. Baal was proven to be powerless, impotent, useless. Likewise, the God of the Philistines, Dagon, you remember when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and brought it into the temple of Dagon. And the next day, the priests go in and they see Dagon fallen prostrate prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. And so they prop up Dagon, and the very next day they find him decapitated, his hands and his head broken from his body. In the ancient world, defeated impotent kings might have their hands cut off to demonstrate their impotency or beheaded to demonstrate the death of a kingdom. All the idols of the world are decapitated and broken and helpless before the one true living God. Israel's flirtation with idols sadly did not end with the golden calf incident enabled by Aaron and his sin. Later, Jeroboam would lure the northern tribes away and offer them golden calves of his own to lure the people away from worship, worshiping the living God in Jerusalem. Both Israel and Judah would eventually be cast off into exile. Punishment for their persistent idolatry. And in a large measure, the exile of God's people purged the people from idolatry. This past weekend, my wife and I purged our home to prep for a great yard sale. We got rid of a lot of stuff. We need purging. God's people need purging and cleansing and renewal and revitalization. And so God used the exile to purge and cleanse his people from the worship of graven images. And so by the New Testament times, Israel did not struggle with the worship of graven images. And yet the unpreparedness of many people in Israel for Jesus' arrival, the the hostility that Jesus was met by the religious establishment indicated that Israel had many idols of the heart. The Sadducees, guilty of their desire and quest for power and seats of privilege and influence. The Pharisees, guilty of pursuing and loving their own righteousness. Our psalm warns us against making idols, against trusting in idols, unless we become like them. Idolatry makes us blind and deaf to the truth of God's word. It hinders our hands and our feet from doing God's will in a manner pleasing to him. Not many of us are tempted by bowing down before graven images like many in other parts of the world, Asia especially. But you and I are still surrounded by a culture of idols, and we are tempted by them. 
all of us are afflicted with a great worship disorder. We make idols of many things. Money, people, people pleasing, pleasure. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The idol of money can lead to greed, one hoarding and boasting and putting a false sense of security in one's wealth. It can lead to envy, the craving and coveting of what other people have, or wallowing in self-pity. Neither idolater is trusting in the Lord or in his gracious provision. Money can give the illusion of power, control, influence, security, but wealth is worthless on the day of wrath. And a fixation, obsession with money only increases fear, anxiety, our tendency to manipulate or pursue superficial relationships. We live in a day and age of pleasure, of of immediate gratification, of self-indulgence. A few weeks ago, our session had a domestic abuse seminar, and during that seminar, our own Justice David Miller shared his observation in recent decades upon the rise in the domestic abuse problem and associating it with the rise in the abuse of alcohol and drugs. People abuse many substances to seek escape, to feel good, to feel invincible, not realizing their habit reduces them to a brute beast. To something ravenous, grasping, living for self and pleasure. Some of us struggle with the idol of pleasing man. If we are not rooted and grounded in Christ, we may excessively fear criticism or hunger and thirst for the approval of others. But those who are identified in Christ aim to please their Father in heaven. And it makes us bold, fearless, compassionate, speaking the truth and love in the likeness of our dear Savior. My wife and I have become increasingly concerned with the the excessiveness of screen time, especially regarding our children and just how, how pervasive TVs and computers and gaming systems and cell phones come to the home and to our children and and the studies demonstrate that, that excessive screen time actually rewires your brain. Excessive screen time, especially at young ages, can actually hardwire your brain to demand more instant stimulation, more instant gratification. It actually can stunt one's ability to engage with a real person. Excessive use of technology and screens makes one dull, a slave to the technology itself, becoming less than God's best for his people. And so that's a warning for young children. Even some of our public schools are pushing for delayed introduction of handheld devices to children. You know, Psalm 106 has a, a stern warning against idolatry. It warns God's people against serving idols under the extent that they murder their own children, sacrificing them to demons. 
idols demand more and more and return less and less on investment. Compare that with Jesus, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, and a God who always delivers on his promises. The letter of 1 John closes with these words, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's in the New Testament age. That's to a people who largely were not struggling with the worship of graven images. And yet idolatry was all around them and in their own hearts. The Bible has a theme of, uh, of, of destroying and tearing down idols and false altars. You remember the angel telling Gideon to tear down the town's altar to Baal. During a time of renewal, the patriarch Jacob commanded his children to bring all their idols and images to be burned before they made a new altar to the living God. Paul's preaching and ministering Ephesus was so effective that the idol makers of the city started a riot in angry response to their lack of business and income. People's conversions lead to the tearing down of idol structures in their lives. So it is in times of renewal and repentance we see our idols in a fresh way. If you're not sure what your idols are, consider what makes you really angry. What makes you really afraid? Usually, that reveals what your idols are, what your fixation and your false trust is focused on. Middle of my junior year of high school, I, after my conversion, I nearly quit football because I recognized for the first time that football had become a hideous idol to me. But after time and discipleship and study, I decided to persevere through my senior year to be a witness to the rest of my team. And yet in my walk with God, I have seen over and over again God exposing and revealing to me the hideousness of my own idols and my constant need to be renewed and replenished with fresh and renewed worship before the living God. Perhaps tonight many of us need to consider what false altars in our lives need to be taken down and where do we need to renew our worship with the living God. We become like what we worship. And if we are growing in Christ, we will give glory to God. We glorify God by trusting him and by blessing him. Verses 9 and following speak of God being our help and our shield. The Hebrew word for help is the same root word to describe Eve. She was Adam's helper. The idea here is that man cannot help himself to his own salvation. He needs a strong redeemer. This quarter in science school, I've been teaching on Islam and Mormonism, which I call the two of the biggest Christian cults because they come out of a Judeo-Christian worldview. And both false religions are man-centered. They are works-oriented. They glory in the works of man and self. 
and neither of these great faiths help people reach salvation. Neither of them glorify God in Christ. Both, in both cases, salvation is based upon a works righteousness that leaves people helpless, pitiful, anxious, fearful, hopeless. No way of escape before the day of God's coming wrath. But those who trust in Christ have a great shield against the day of God's judgment. You recall the Passover where God commanded his people to take a one-year-old lamb to slay it and to brush the blood over the outer doorframe of the house to protect the firstborn from the coming angel of death. And that anticipates the coming of the Lamb of God who with a sign of blood would take away the sins of the world. It's by Jesus' blood atonement that we have a shield, a protection from the coming day of God's wrath. Well, not only do we trust in the Lord who is our help and shield, we also trust the Lord who blesses us. God promised to bless Abraham, to make him a blessing, to make him a blessing to all the nations. Verse 14 speaks of our increase, our growth and prosperity, and that could speak of wealth, land, family. Many of God's people are blessed in these ways, and many are not necessarily blessed in any monetary way. But God's people who fear him, who trust him, will be blessed in growth and grace in knowledge of the Lord, in influence, in joy, peace, love. The things that truly matter in this life and prepare us for the life to come. We are blessed that we might bless him, the great blesser of heavens and earth. The heavens are his. The earth is given to us, and both will be made new in the new heavens and the new earth. Will there be no more disease, no death, no decay, no more disillusionment, no more disappointment? So this, comp, this closing command of this psalm, that we might bless the Lord, that we might praise him forever, speak of the promise of God's eternal presence. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, The upright shall behold his face. Psalm seventeen fifteen says, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And both of these precious psalms anticipate 1 John 3, 2, that offers up this blessed hope that when Christ appears in glory, we will be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is the great hope of the believer, that we will see God face to face and that we will be made like him in holiness and righteousness. In John 17, Jesus' final prayer, he says, Father, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. We live in a world where people place increasing demands and expectations on government, science, medicine, and other medical and other service providers. People insist upon perfection. And yet people and institutions cannot bear the weight of expectations. And they're not worthy of our trust. 
Only God delivers what we truly need. Only God's shoulders can bear the weight of glory. Only God is worthy of our trust, the faithful provider of every good and perfect gift that comes from above. We do not become gods, as the tenets of the Latter-day Saints teach. But we are becoming like God in true holiness and righteousness. We are constantly becoming either something more glorious, more beautiful as we follow Christ, or something more dreadful and more hideous as we walk away from him. Heaven is filled with the God-centered, the God-like whose hearts and minds have been transformed into the glory and image of Christ. Hell is filled with the man-centered, those who insist on their own way, those consumed with self-pity. So when tempted by sin, worship the Lord. Ask God to restore your sanity, because that's what sin is. Sin is temporary insanity. When you are suffering from self-pity, humble yourself. Be reminded of God's provision for you to renew your gratitude towards him. And when you find the idols of this age alluring, tempting you, remember that they are empty nothings and that those who serve them will become like them, empty and vain. And I invite you to join the throng of the righteous who do not glory in self or glory in worthless idols, but glory in God and worship him with joy and everlasting satisfaction. Those who worship him will be made like him. Let us pray. Our dear gracious God, our Father, thank you for delivering us from idolatry, from the glory of self, and to you alone be the glory. May we walk this week as a people who delight to bring glory to your holy and matchless name. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.